Good morning, Crossway. Um, we'll be in First Peter again. Um, has anyone been enjoying First Peter? So good. Um, but yeah, today we're continuing. Today we'll be in chapter two. We'll be going over verses one through ten. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there with me. First <clears throat> Peter chapter two. But before I read it, let me pray. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for gathering us here this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to hear your word. I pray that you use me as a faithful servant to proclaim your excellencies and proclaim your truth. Lord, use your word to penetrate our hearts and affect our lives and deepen our trust in you. Lord, we love you and we thank you again. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. <clears throat> it says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. <clears throat> For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. But you are a chosen race, a, whole, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We have three headings this morning that we can break up this text into. Um, you see it on the papers, the little handouts. It says the word of God, number one, the temple of God, and the priests of God. <clears throat> the word of God, the temple of God, and the priests of God. First, the word of God. The fact that Peter starts this chapter with the word, therefore, tells us that what he is about to say rests on his previous teaching. Everything that he has said before is the foundation for what is coming next. We saw in verses 13 through 16 of chapter 1 that <clears throat> believers are to have a redeemed mind that pursues holiness. In 17 to 21, we saw that Christ has redeemed believers with his blood. In verses 22 to 25, we see that believers have received faith from God through the eternal word of God. And so we come to this passage and he says, 
Therefore, believers are to lay aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. Notice here how Peter's appeal in this verse is not a direct command. It is actually an implied command. This is what normally happens to people who have been saved by God. This is a description of what will happen naturally to people, to Jesus' followers, as a result of salvation. We look at Mormons, we look at Catholics, Buddhists, Jehovah's Witnesses. All they're putting off is supposed to happen before they get right with God. They are to somehow lay aside their sinfulness on their own in order to earn favor in God's eyes. They are to somehow outdo their evil deeds. But Christians, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And because we have been saved, because we have been given a new heart, and we have new desires, and we have the Holy Spirit to help us, we now put off all malice, deceit, envy, and slander. And this is very similar to Paul's exhortation to the believers in Colossae. In chapter 3, he says to them, If you have been raised, in Christ, raised with Christ, seek things above. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Because you have been born again, act like it. Put on Christ, put off wickedness, essentially. Not because it saves you, because you have been saved. Peter then exhorts his readers to desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow. He says, long for the spiritual milk like newborn infants. Now, when you hear this illustration, you might think, wait a minute. I thought milk like wasn't necessarily a good thing. You might have heard someone call another church weak or you've heard people say like, oh, that pastor, he just preaches milk. Has anyone ever heard this? Has anyone ever said this? I, I might have. <laughs> but this thought comes from Paul using a similar analogy in 1 Corinthians 3, where he says, But I, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it, and even now not ready for it. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 5 says something similar. He says, for though at this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. So these verses could have come to your mind when you hear this illustration of milk. But Peter means something completely different here. Peter's the only New Testament author to use this baby milk illustration, this analogy, in a positive way. Here in verse 3, Peter notes that believers will want to digest the pure milk of the word since they have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. They'll want it. They'll crave it because they've tasted that he's good. And with this statement, Peter is alluding to Psalm 34, 8, which says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. So since you have tasted that and you have seen that the Lord is good, keep craving that. My awesome wife, Hillary Jane here, 
She's always trying to get me to eat healthier. And you know what? It's a good thing. I need to. And you know what? Sometimes I go with it. Sometimes I eat stuff that is green. Have you ever eaten something that is not only healthy, but it also tastes good? It's rare, I know. But Peter is saying you've tasted of God and you've recognized that God is good, so set your taste buds on that. It's good for you and it's delicious. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. Peter doesn't tell us to read or teach the word. He doesn't tell us to study the word or meditate on the word or preach the word like Paul does. Yes, all these things are vital, but at the core of all of those things, the necessity is to have a longing for the word. That is the fundamental aspect, to have a deep craving for it. And Peter uses this analogy that everyone can understand, especially us, with our nursery bursting at the seams. We know a thing or two about babies. It's a simple comparison. Long for the pure milk of the word like newborn babies. What do babies crave? They crave milk and only milk. As parents or grandparents, you might care about the color of blanket that you get them. You might care about the crib and that it matches the curtains. You might care about all the different decorations, their cute little outfits. But they don't. Kids' first birthdays, they're actually for the parents. They don't scream because you got them red pajamas over blue pajamas. They scream because they want milk. And isn't it amazing how God made babies cute, cuddly, soft, but their voices loud and sharp. But this is so necessary. You're not going to forget to feed your baby. They're not going to let you. They're going to scream their head off until you do. And this is the singular focus that draws the illustration that Peter chooses. We are to long for God's word the same way that babies crave milk. We see all the time, because we live in a culture of therapy that loves therapy so much, we see people going to counseling. People love reading books on how to fix different things, their marriage, their finances. People watch videos on how to be wise with their life. But the power is in this book. What makes therapy or books or podcasts or videos or sermons effective? What gives them the power to help your soul? It's when they have God's word in them. It's when your soul hears from its creator. There is no other way to grow spiritually than to consume the word of God. What do you crave? What do you want to listen to? Who do you want to speak into your life? So I want to see all of you at like 10.10, scream, crying, coming into service because you crave the scriptures. So Mark, don't freak out. Number two, the temple of God. In verses 4 to 10, Peter uses two illustrations as he continues to discuss the believer's identity in Christ. Verses 4, he says, as you come to him, 
a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Who is this living stone? Who is this one rejected by men? It is Jesus Christ. It is the one who calls people to abandon their turmoil of their sin and come to him in faith and experience true rest for their soul. The living stone is the one who says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. People who once had troubled souls are now at peace. In John 6.35, Jesus told the multitude, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. The Son of God, wrapped in flesh, lived among his creation and was rejected. He was beaten, mocked, and killed. But he rose from the dead. And so he is a living stone. Offering rest and salvation to people, he was rejected. But in the sight of God, he was chosen and precious. In Matthew 3, when Jesus is getting baptized, the Father said from heaven, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus was chosen by the Father, and he was precious to him. Peter then says believers are to come to Jesus as living stones. When you put your faith in the risen Christ, this living stone, you become a living stone. You have eternal life. You are united with him and you will be resurrected just like he was. Paul told the Colossians, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Paul also told the Paul also told the Ephesians, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. This illustration of stones being built up is significant. Jesus personally told Peter that he himself was a rock. He said, and I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, in Matthew 16. Believers are living stones that God uses to build a spiritual house, a temple. Like stones built together, we are united with Christ, who is our cornerstone. And a cornerstone is the first stone set in the construction of a foundation. All the other stones will be set in reference to this stone. He is the foundation. He is, another word for it, is the keystone. God is building his church. And Jesus Christ is our cornerstone. 
He is our foundation. And nothing will get in the way of that. This world may be getting more and more hostile to us. But one, what we're experiencing is nothing compared to what these people were experiencing. They were scattered. They were being persecuted. They weren't just getting canceled. They were losing their lives. And number two, it doesn't matter what the world tries to do with us. Do to us. God protects his church. God will build his church. And the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Persecution and martyrdom has never slowed the church down. If anything, it energizes believers to build the church even more. We are building blocks. We are living stones that make up the church and we will never crumble to the ground because of who our cornerstone is. Jesus Christ. Steadfast, immovable. God saves men and women and then uses them to build a temple. Why? Well, Peter says, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter continues his illustration by quoting three Old Testament passages. Isaiah 28, 16, Psalm 118, 22, and Isaiah 8, 14. These connections to the Old Testament are significant to our Christology, what we believe about Christ, because they show us that what is true of Yahweh, what is true of the Lord, is also true of Jesus. Jesus is called the living stone because of, the, because of his resurrection. And Peter draws this theme from Psalm 118.22, where the stone is rejected by the builders and becomes the cornerstone. Peter appealed to the same verse in Acts 4.11. He refers to Christ's death and resurrection and exaltation. The argument in Acts 4 demonstrates the connection. The religious leaders hated Jesus, and they crucified him. But God made him the cornerstone by raising him up. Such a reading of Psalm 118 stems from Jesus himself in the parable of the tenants in Matthew 21, where the tenants kill the son so that they can get the inheritance. A clear reference to the crucifixion of Christ, fulfilling the prophecy that the builders would reject the cornerstone. But Matthew implies that the slaying of Jesus would not be the final word because he becomes the cornerstone. This concept of Jesus being this chief cornerstone and believers being crafted into God's temple is an important concept. It can help believers better view the Old Testament temple as a picture or object lesson of, of the gospel. In verses 7 and 8, Peter discusses the implication of Jesus being this chief cornerstone, even for unbelievers. Peter says, even though the disobedient people reject Christ, he is still the chief cornerstone. They can't change that. This cornerstone is always going to be in place, and so they stumble over it and fall. They stumble over Jesus. Verse 8 says they stumble being disobedient to the word. It's like the atheist who says he 
doesn't believe in God, that atheist's belief or unbelief, it has no bearing on God. You can deny his existence all you want, but he is still there, ruling the heavens and the earth. He is still there, allowing you to breathe, allowing you to deny him. Have you ever thought about that? Atheists only exist because God lets them. Here, Peter identifies the church as God's new temple. The physical temple of old pointed forward and anticipated God's new temple. And now that the new temple has arrived, the old is not needed. As believers who know God through Christ, we have the privilege of full admission into his presence. As a believing Jew, the Apostle Peter realized the New Testament economy was different from the old in terms of God's presence with believers. In the old economy, God's temple, which represented his presence, was a material house, and it was temporary. But in the new, believers are being built up as a spiritual house that supersedes any material building. They constitute God's spiritual temple, which Paul called the household of God, which is the church of the living God. The writer of Hebrews also identifies the spiritual house in this way. In chapter 3, verse 6, he says, Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. So believers have access to God as living stones, and they, and they commune with him as his spiritual dwelling. In his book about the glory and beauty of the church called the loveliest place, Dustin Benge says, God could have chosen to make his beauty known exclusively through breathtaking landscapes, beautiful oceans, and amazing sunsets. But instead, he has decided to display his radiance within the hearts of the crown of his creation, humanity in the church. And so how do we know how to display his radiance and display his glory in the church? We know him and display it by getting to know him in his word. We love and we crave his word because we get a glimpse at him. And when we glimpse at him, we proclaim and we reflect it, reflect him to the world. Number three, the priests of God. Peter uses another illustration to show that believer's identity in Christ as believers, we function as a holy priesthood. Now, when you hear the word priests, what do you think of? Do you think of the unbiblical, white-collared Catholic priest? A lot of us probably do. But when Scripture speaks about believers being priests, it's not talking about this. One of my favorite Christian rap songs says, I ain't got no white collar. He made me a priest, though. So when Scripture speaks about priests, it's not talking about the white collar. But he did make us priests. It didn't even mean the old covenant priesthood ways. He's referring to it. But he's not talking about those ways where, the, where only a single tribe of priests could officially serve God 
and sacred ceremonies, it's better now. In the Old Testament, only the high priest could actually go into the Holy of Holies. And only once a year. Anyone who presumptuously crossed over into the priestly function without meeting all the requirements and qualifications of the priesthood, they would suffer severe judgment. For example, when the rebellious Korah and his army wrongfully and sinfully had an ambition to be priests, God destroyed them. When King Saul undermined Samuel's priestly function at Gilgal, God removed the kingdom from him. When Uzzah touched the ark of God, he died. But under the new covenant, limitations like that don't exist anymore. Since all believers are a holy priesthood, the primary function of the Old Testament priests as they ministered in the tabernacle and then in the temple was to offer animal sacrifices. But when Christ inaugurated the new covenant, animal sacrifices were no longer necessary. Now the only sacrifices remaining for the priesthood of believers to offer up, according to Peter here, are spiritual sacrifices. One commentator summarizes the difference between the old and new sacrifices really well. He says, the main task of the Old Testament priests was the offering of material animal sacrifices, all of which pointed to Christ's great sacrifice to come. These are no longer needed since Christ offered his all-sufficient sacrifice once for all. Now there remain for God's now there remain for God's holy priesthood only the sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving, seeing that all the treasures of God's grace are now poured out upon us through Christ. Thus Peter writes regarding all his readers to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, to carry or bring up on the altar of their hearts. On this side of the cross, on this side of God's sacrifice, we are to offer up our praise and thanksgiving. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Peter here says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Because we are saved, we worship. And with all of our lives, worship is not just the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It is everything. We worship when we pray when we give, when we preach, when we obey. In verse 5, Peter describes believers as a holy priesthood. In verse 9, he says we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Verse 5, Peter teaches that the reason why God saved men and uses them to become and staff a temple is to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
And in verse 9, he teaches that believers are redeemed. Why? That they may proclaim the praises of him who called them out of darkness and into his marvelous light. The teaching in both passages is identical and clear. God redeemed mankind for the ultimate purpose that we might praise him forever. As God taught through Isaiah in chapter 43, I have redeemed you for my glory. They stumble because they disobey the word. You are to crave the word. They stumble over Christ, but you, verse 9, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are saved and chosen and a temple and priests so that we may proclaim his excellencies. You have been saved. Do you proclaim him? In your job or in your school, at your mom's group, when you see coworkers or classmates in the darkness, when you see them struggling, toiling in their sin, unsatisfied by this mess of the world, do you share how you were called out of darkness and into the marvelous light? Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In this verse, Peter draws an analogy from Hosea to show the compassion of Christ. Hosea 1, 6-10 says that, Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Rahamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel, that I would ever forgive them. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. When she had weaned Lo-Rahamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. According to that passage, there was coming a time when the Jews would no longer receive God's compassion. And this was directly fulfilled in the judgment that came on the northern kingdom at the hands of the Assyrians in 722 B.C. But there would be a future time when he would have compassion on the sons of Israel and Judah by saving uncounted numbers of them. And so Peter here, he takes this and he says the same to the church, particularly to the Gentile members. The prophet's words concerning the Jews. As unbelievers, the Gentiles knew no compassion from Christ. They were once not a people. They were the wicked people in the darkness. But now, they had become the people of God because they had received His mercy. Are any of you here still out in the darkness? Do any of you know anyone who needs to hear the excellencies of Christ so that they can be saved and proclaim them with you? 
This Christianity that we know and love from scriptures is not merely about life change. It's about loving Jesus. And so as royal priests and as the temple of God with access and the knowledge of what Christ has done for you through the gospel, proclaim Christ to this dying world. Remember where you came from. Remember what God has done for you. You were once not a people. You had no hope without Christ. You were lost and dead in your sin. But now what are you? You are God's people. Holy and blameless before God. Adopted into the family of God. Remember your condition. You were doomed to hell. Once you had not received mercy, but now what? You have received mercy. How can you not shout this from the rooftops? How can you not tell your neighbor? How can you not crave to learn more about this God from his word? Like newborn babies crave the word. This gives us life. If you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and evil and all slander. We should get so full off of God's word that it spoils our appetite for sin and anything else. It is a glorious thing to be a Christian. It is a privilege to love Jesus. So let's continue loving him and devouring his word and proclaiming his excellencies together as priests and living stones. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gospel and we thank you for having mercy on us. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray that we would crave it more and more. Lord, just thank you for all that you've done for us. Lord, it is a privilege to be one of yours, to be a priest, your temple, living stones. Lord, I pray that we would proclaim your excellencies to this world to show how you have saved us from the darkness. Lord, I pray that you would be with us for the rest of this Sunday morning. I pray that we would worship you with our whole hearts this morning and with reverence as we take communion and remember your death. Lord, thank you again. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.